This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Elisa Park, who's Associate Professor of History at the University of Iowa, and she'll be talking about her new book, Sovereignty Experiments, Korean Migrants and the Building of Borders in Northeast Asia, 1860 to 1945, which was published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. People moving from one place to another in large and sometimes unanticipated numbers is today one of the most pressing issues which citizens and their governments across the world must deal with. The difficulty of reconciling modern nation-states and their supposedly firm borders and sovereignty claims with the inherent mobility of human populations is evident everywhere from Arizona to the Mediterranean and from Kenya to Myanmar. But if transnational migrants pose such apparent problems for well-established polities, what happens if both people and the entire political order of sovereignty and boundaries are in flux at precisely the same time? Elisa Park's captivating book, Sovereignty Experiments, draws our attention to a time and a place when this was more or less exactly what was going on, namely the meeting point of what we now call China, Russia and Korea from the mid-19th to the mid-20th centuries. Focusing in particular on Korean migrants and their movements from the Korean peninsula into Manchuria and eastern Russia, Park shows how this group's entanglements and negotiations with shifting power centres in Beijing, St. Petersburg, Tokyo and Seoul fed into a total reimagining of what it meant to govern territory and population at this time. Drawing on Russian, Korean and Chinese sources, Park opens our eyes to both intimate migrant experiences and higher-level government machinations which unfolded at this meeting of worlds during this period, deftly interweaving the personal and the political and showing how they interrelated. While occurring in a less well-known location often obscured by the large states and empires which surround it, this activity, as Park shows, had much wider ramifications for questions of nation, state, territory and ethnicity – and how these were understood, not just in Korea, China, Russia, and Japan, but more widely. Many of these ideas arguably continued to reverberate through the latter 20th century, and are still with us today. But the author herself is here to tell us how all this played out, and so I'll say, Elisa Park, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, thank you for agreeing to appear, and uh, perhaps uh, it would be good to begin by discussing how you came to this uh, pretty fascinating uh, borderland region and how you you became interested in the sort of transnational questions that uh, the book deals with. Yes, absolutely. Um, So the book originated uh, with my interest in Russian history and its connections with Asia uh, over two decades ago. Uh, In college, I stumbled upon a Russian language course, uh, naively thinking that after a few classes, I might be able to read uh, the great Russian novelist. But, you know, from there, uh, my interest in Russia and Soviet Union, particularly as multi-ethnic entities, uh, grew organically. And I had an opportunity to travel to Russia. So my first time there 
is the mid-90s, and I am in Irkutsk uh, in central Siberia. So for those of you who don't know, that's right on um, Lake Baikal. And I was struck by the cosmopolitanism and the internationalism and the internationalism of the city, uh, but in a way that I was not familiar with uh, as someone from, you know, Queens, New York, uh, which itself is, of course, very cosmopolitan and international. Um, you know, there were a mix of, you know, Slavic peoples, Chinese and other Asiatic uh, looking peoples, but obviously they were all speaking Russian. And one day I was on a trolley bus and I'm, of course, hearing Russian around me, but then I hear Korean. And I look up and there is a Korean family, um, you know, a grandmother, her grandson, you know, her daughter. And I was so curious and I asked them where they were from. And they said that they were from North Korea. And I was, you know, we, we sort of looked at each other with mutual curiosity, me being from, uh, me being Korean American. And, um, you know, I later learned that there had been trickles of migration from North Korea to the Soviet Union. Uh, and then in my studies as an undergraduate, of course, I learned that there had been a much larger number of Koreans who had been living in the Russian Far East, who had then been deported in total by Stalin in 1937, uh, forcibly moved to uh, Central Asia, primarily Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. Uh, so that was sort of the beginning point uh, that sparked my interest um, in this area. Um, later on, uh, I went to graduate school, and the idea was to actually kind of go backward in time. So the, you know, the beginning point for me was Central Asia, and I had actually, you know, traveled there um, as an intrepid traveler, <laughs> a college student. Um, so in graduate school, I wanted to go back to their own origins in the Russian Far East um, and also Korea. But I go to graduate school and then, um, you know, I enter for Korean history. And I'm just surprised to learn, again, perhaps naively, uh, that Russia as a subject of study is just not done by East Asian historians. It's, it's like very other. And I mean, it's ironic when we think, I mean, you just have to look at a map. Uh, much of Siberia, Russia the Russian Far East borders on China. It, it's just very much a presence in East Asia. Uh, it's also surprising that it's not included when we consider, uh, you know, the course of geopolitics of history in the 20th century, um, especially post-1945. So I was always guided by this question of why, why, why is Russia not included? And then you know, delving in graduate studies in Russian and Soviet history, uh, you have historians looking at Central Asia, right? Um, and then, you know, Ottoman Empire, those connections. But then why not East Asia? So this kind of question of this, like, juxtaposition of place, um, but also connections. Um, I, I knew that there were people traveling back and forth across the border. I mean, it's just sort of common sense. And so... Um, that was another beginning point for me uh, in graduate school into this project. Right, right. Now, I mean, do you sort of have an answer, I guess, about why Russia is so kind of occluded from this? I mean, not just, I guess, in uh, disciplinary terms in academic activity, but also a kind of broader consciousness. I mean, um, it sounds like you were quite surprised to uh, bump into these North Koreans on the mm -hmm. trolley bus. And I mean, the kind of level of awareness that is there, um, uh, you know, about uh, a Korean presence within the former Soviet Union. Do you think, is that mostly, do you think, a kind of Cold War vestige to do with just not knowing a great deal about the place? Or are there other reasons? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, as you were, um, you know, formulating your question, I was actually thinking that it was because of the post-1945 uh, politics that at least we, uh, in sort of North American European, like, oh, well, probably maybe not Western Europe, but at least North American scholarship has occluded Russia. Uh, it's sort of this blind spot um, in East Asian history. 
And I would also say that for East Asianists, I think it is the specter of the Japanese empire uh, and the very large um, presence of U.S. power uh, post-1945, which has guided what historians of East Asia have then studied before 1945. So now you have, you know, what, what was the U.S. doing in Japan, Korea, China, in the 19th century? What were these other Western European powers doing there? Um, but yeah, these Cold War rivalries, uh, Russia and the Soviet Union are left out in that historiography and also in our, our consciousness. Right, right. And yeah, so it's interesting, I guess, there to look at how the how the present sort of imprints itself on uh, on what we can actually uh, naturally see of the past. Um, and uh, I guess, in a way, um, the book uh, is a fantastic act of salvage of <laughs> kind of uh, looking at things uh, from the other uh, end of the telescope and, and bringing us sort of forward to how we did actually get to the situation we did, uh, we, we are in from um, sort of the, the history of, of, a, of a Korean presence in, in these different areas um so we'll move into talking about the book perhaps now we know something of the um, really uh, fascinating background to it um so um you uh have kind of set the book up in uh the introduction uh giving us a bit of a picture of the the region and this um small kind of well i guess it's not actually a particularly small area but it's a real focal point for where these different countries um russia china korea in shorthand uh, all come together the tuman valley um so uh it's hard to discuss anywhere that's kind of emerging as you're talking about it a sort of you know location in the making um but can you give us a bit of a picture of uh, this tuman river area the tuman river being the sort of border river between uh, china and north korea these days and between north korea and russia um and what was going on here in the 19th and 20th centuries yes um so the Tuman River area um, is a tripartite border region uh, between northern Korea, China, uh, and Russia. Uh, Russia was a latecomer to the region. Um, it, you know, because of a treaty, uh, it gains a significant amount of land uh, in 1860. Uh, and the Tuman River area is um, sort of Surprising, but not surprising in many ways when we look at it in comparison to other kinds of border areas or uh, frontier areas. Uh, So in terms of its uniqueness, um, this area uh, was one of the only land borders in East Asia. Uh, It was also unique because um, it was this land border between two bureaucratic centralized states. So this is Um, China and Korea. So unlike other sort of border areas, which fall off the radar uh, of uh, the capitals of states because of its remoteness, uh, there was actually due attention paid to this area. And in fact, uh, it was governed by a policy called the uh, prohibited zone or the prohibited policy. And so this policy was upheld both by Qing China uh, and Joseon's Korea. Uh, so what is this policy? Um, early on in its rule, the Qing decided to segregate uh, this area. So the area, the Tumen River area, was part of um, Manchuria, which was considered the historic homeland of the Manchus. So the Qing, being Manchu in origin, uh, the Qing decided to segregate this area to... Uh, preserve the ethnicity, the ways of life of the Manchu people, um, if you will. Um, And so no one was allowed to live there except uh, the Manchus, uh, people who were already living there, who were uh, various indigenous peoples, the Heje, the Orichin, various Jurchen tribes, uh, and also people who were given permission um, by the government. Um, And, you know, there was... Punishment, I mean, whether or not this is actually upheld is a question um, if you cross into the zone or not. Um, So the region was also segregated because uh, of its natural resources. So because of the tribute system, uh, no primary... So uh, the commercial activity in the region was not allowed. So the natural resources in the region 
um, you know, wild ginseng, gold, pearls, you name it, it was there. Uh, many of these items were reserved uh, to be offered up to tribute uh, to the Qing emperor. On the other side of uh, the border, uh, we have Chosun Korea, which similarly upheld, uh, upholds uh, this policy. So the punishment for crossing into the zone, that is crossing the border, is um, execution. Uh, you're beheaded and your family is made slaves. Um, so this was for Chosun as a relatively small country next to a very powerful state like uh, the Ming and then the Qing. Um, it was also a security measure. Uh, they didn't want trouble um, from the people living um, on the other side. So these are, this was the uniqueness of the Tumen River area. Um, on the other hand, it was, it was quite common to um, other border and frontier areas. So um, what is the attitude um, towards a, you know, a frontier? It's often considered a hinterland, um, a place of barbarians. And for the Joseon court, uh, it's a place of the barbarians because they consider the indigenous people living there to be so, uh, the Jurchens. Um, and it was also located very distant from what they considered uh, the seat of civilization, which, of course, was the capital of Seoul. Um, and when you come to the 19th century, here is where we see, you know, this kind of classic frontier uh, and all of the kind of um, characteristics. Um, so I look at the Russian Far East and Manchuria, um, the history unfolding in a very similar way to what happened in the American West uh, and the Pacific Northwest. You have um, a frontier areas um, being connected to the global market, and you have these state-led projects to extract the natural resources now to be then used and sold on the market. Um, and with that, you have the coming of people, right? So these state-led projects, the exploitation of resources creates new reasons for people to move. So similar to the boom in California, we have a kind of a boom on a lesser scale um, in uh, this region uh, of the Tumen River Valley. Uh, and this is when you have uh, many Chinese and Koreans uh, becoming the laborers um, on these, um, you know, in the gold mines, railroads, etc. Right, right. And in terms of the sort of arrival here of Russia and the kind of new uh, presence, yeah, of, of both commercial and also political activity, once uh, this sector of territory, as you mentioned there at the beginning, had been uh, kind of hived off um, by uh, the Tsarist's uh, empire, if you like, how did this alter the kind of sense that uh, pre-existed their arrival, as you say, from the Qing side and from the Choson side about how to rule and govern this area? Uh, yes. Um, so, so the entrance of Russia, um, I would say that it made changes um, and also simply intensified what was already going on. So when you have the arrival of an outside power, especially one that's outside of the tributary system, right, which the Qing and the Chosun court consider as quite other, um, they kind of notice new things, right? So for the, the Russian empire, uh, they've come in, it's a new area, and like other areas, uh, that they've, you know, annexed, they send in explorers and geographers to do studies. And so Koreans and Chinese had already been moving around in this area. So it's not like in my book starts in 1860, you know, when the new border is drawn and more Koreans start to move. But this is not to say that Koreans were not already moving. It's just that the presence of Russia and their various explorers, it shines a spotlight on the processes that were already going on. The presence of Russia, however, does create new changes, which is that it creates new reasons to move, right? So the Qing Empire is not immediately, you know, switching from having these uh, natural resources reserved as tribute items to then, 
you know, exploiting them on the commercial market. Uh, this is a very gradual process for the Qing, right? Um, and China. Uh, for Russia, they start those immediately. Uh, you know, um, railroads, uh, extraction of, you know, coal and gold and, you know, other things in this area, uh, not to mention land recl- reclamation. Uh, so they immediately need workers um, to go about on these projects. Right, right. Um, and in terms of uh, the sort of shifting experimental, I guess, sovereignty claims that uh, different power centers um, started to make uh, over the area because of this kind of transformational uh, influence, I guess, of yeah, Russia's, uh, Russia's presence and um, the, the new markets and everything, as you say. Um, I mean, what were the kind of new regimes that were brought in or were experimented with, if you like, kind of broadly speaking, if we're moving from a, a kind of broad, roughly a tributary order and one in which uh, previously these areas had been kind of off limits and uh, and, and ex- zones of exclusion, um, what are the sort of new traits that are brought into how sovereignty is exercised? Um, that's a great question. Um, so I think that uh, all of these states, um, they do see themselves as sovereign states, at least by uh, 1600, right? So this is when political scientists and historians uh, typically mark the beginning of you know, the modern world. Um, and this kind of consciousness of states about themselves um, as a sovereign. And the definition of sovereignty uh, that I use um, is an institutionalized authority claim over a delimited political space and also everything in it. And so this is a mutually exclusive institution, right? So this only exists if other people recognize that you are also sovereign, right? It goes both ways. Uh, so this, this idea um, is already in place. Uh, what changes in the period that I study uh, is um, the practice of it and the capacity of states to actually carry this out. And so in my book, I look at uh, the border region, which is in many ways an ideal place to actually look at the unfolding and the kind of the iterative projects or these experiments that I call uh, around how sovereignty is actually made a real thing uh, in practice uh, for the states at the high level, but especially for the people who are living on the ground. So in my book, who are the the various characters (laughs) who appear in my book? You know, I was very tired of reading these high-level histories, diplomatic histories um, of bureaucrats who were located in the capital and not knowing what's going on on the ground. And so in my book, the the main characters are these no-name, middle and low-level officials who were dealing with many troubles (laughs) on the border. And the other characters are the people who were causing them trouble, um, in, you know, in their own language. And these were the Koreans. So uh, the Koreans become the kind of target of sovereignty, you know, experiments um, on the border. And so this is my chosen uh, topic uh, for the book um, uh, to, to actually see this unfolding um, of sovereignty. And so what actually changes Um, in terms of sovereignty practices as it regards to people uh, and not territory. Um, Well, in the mid-19th century, because of all of these kind of external changes, right, uh, also environmental, which I guess we can get get to later, uh, you have more mobility um, in the region. Um, You also have more officials paying attention. Um, And so... Uh, the Koreans sort of uh, force these officials to come to terms and actually define what uh, sovereignty means. And how does this actually take place? So for the Qing and Chosan, it's a much longer trajectory, um, which is never resolved, uh, even, you know, 1909. Um, uh, 
Uh, but the Qing'an Chosun had historically, if someone crossed the border, they were not caught and killed. Um, they uh, were repatriated back to their original country. So the Qing'an Chosun uh, recognized each other's claim to these people, their belonging to the political community of either state. And so they actually continued this practice uh, in the late 19th century and even in the early 20th century when things changed dramatically uh, geopolitically, we see the Chosun state actually trying to continue this, this practice of repatriation. Uh, so the about face in Qing policy happens um, in the 1880s where it reverses its policy of repatriating and it has by then opened the Tumen Valley um, to, you know, de facto opened it because of migration. And they begin to claim the Koreans as Qing subjects. So this is quite unheard of. And, um, and, and contrary to the repeated complaints of the Chosun court, um, the Koreans who are living there, who have already begun to farm the land uh, and also reclaim the land, um, you know, they, if they want to stay, the Qing officials say that they have to become Qing subjects. They have to shave their heads in the Manchu style. They need to pay taxes and register in the local household registers. Um, on the Russian side, uh, how are these claims made? Uh, in a very similar fashion, uh, the Russians, you know, historically um, had, you know, it didn't matter what your subjecthood was or what your citizenship was. As they expanded eastward, from the 15 and 1600s, they accumulated territory, um, but you know it was this vast empire. It's impossible to govern it, you know, in a standardized fashion. And so, as they're accumulating land piecemeal, uh, they have this system of plural legal jurisdiction, uh, which essentially means that um, you know each region is sort of governed by you know, its own set of parameters. Um, and this was not, you know, a problematic idea for the, you know, for Russia, the Qing Empire governed probably in a similar fashion. Um, and so from the 19th century, the mid-19th century, you have uh, the Russian government um, gradually coming to terms um, with trying to rule uh, its empire in a more uniform fashion. Uh, and so here, the primary divide um, becomes, you know, subjecthood. You know, it's important whether you're a Russian subject or, um, you know, if you're not a subject, you're an alien and certain privileges are granted uh, based on uh, that legal status. Right, right. And I think the interplay of these different regimes of how to construct a uh, multi-ethnic uh, empire of subjects with different kind of uh, backgrounds, I mean, it really challenges... Uh, as you say, a kind of broad understanding that we maybe uh, assume to have of sovereignty and uh, nationhood and statehood and so on, especially in East Asia, where I think often the idea that Korean people, or there is an idea that Korean people belong in Korea and Japanese people belong in Japan and Chinese people belong in China, that the, the, those are often associated with kind of later nationalisms and sort of uh, things that occurred you know, after this sort of moder modern idea of territorial statehood emerged. But as you're saying, actually, that was already going on uh, before. And it was only kind of as a result of ch changes brought about by some of these big historical cataclysms in the area that made the Qing rethink and say, well, you know, actually, uh, at least here in particular, we need to be including Koreans as subjects. Um, I mean, the Qing is thought of as being a kind of big multi-ethnic empire, but I guess the Northeast is usually excluded from that picture. Um, and, and so that shift in this very kind of local context, I think really is very helpful in helping us understand um, some of how the kind of uh, uh, state uh, concepts emerged as well around this uh, key area. Um, but I wonder, uh, as far as the Koreans who, I guess, accelerated a lot of these changes are concerned, or at least uh, the, the, the pres whose presence was a big part of these transformations, um, still on the sort of 
uh, introductory level, I guess, of how we talk about what was going on. Um, you mentioned in the book the idea of using diaspora and, and, and related terms for these different groups. And, of course, Koreans uh, in uh, different parts of Northeast Asia, in, in Japan and, and Russian Far East and, and uh, Northeast China, too, present certain challenges, I guess, to what we might understand as diaspora. So could you say how you sort of see these people as uh, Koreans, as a, you know, a diasporic population or not a diasporic population, um, and, and how you kind of conceive of them? Um, so certainly um, diaspora has uh, very many meanings. And um, you might have noticed in my book, I actually don't use the word diaspora. Um, it's, you know, used in the beginning uh, for, you know, explanation. Um, but in many ways, I was attempting in my book to kind of shatter the conventional definition of diaspora, um, which was, has this connotation of, you know, oppression and, um, you know, forced exile and also this essentialized um, identity. Um, you know, because of its roots, uh, you know, diaspora has traditionally been used um, in regard to uh, the Jewish exile. Um, so for me, I guess, uh, I hope I don't sound too academic here, <laughs> um, but diaspora is um, um, what, it, it, in spite of its being increasingly diverse um, in definition, for me, uh, diaspora still retains its sort of uh, sense of movement um, of a petit, of a people outside a particular space of authority, uh, usually a, a particular state, uh, and also the building of a community uh, that is both outside um, that space um, and connected to it. So I hope that didn't sound um, too, too academic. Um, but no, I think that's, yeah, I think that's fine. And, and, I, and I actually, um, what was important for me in the book, uh, and of course, diaspora was always in the back of my mind. Um, and I guess the ways that it, it actually manifests itself in the book without actually using the word um, is the mobility, um, you know, a recognition of space, consciousness of space, uh, and how it's both sort of constructed but exploded. Um, and also, diaspora for me has a very um, activist impulse. So why does this term diaspora figure so very prominently in works of Korean history and Korean anthropology? You know, everything's diaspora, diaspora. Um, it's because diaspora is a powerful way to reclaim a perspective that has been completely lost in the imperial archive. And so for Korea's history, it is a history of imposition, right? Of various empires trying to take over in different ways. So the imperial archive, whether it's Japanese or Russian, will speak about Koreans in a certain way, usually in Orientalist terms, um, you know, and they're always assessing Koreans within the framework and within the language of empire. For example, how well or poorly do Koreans assimilate or adapt to our regime, right? So a diasporic perspective for me tries to tell a story of Koreans on their own terms. Uh, so in my case, I was butting up against imperial archives of three empires, right? And so I was actually forced to, I had to use the imperial sources, right? They're very important. Uh, and in most cases, that's all that's written. Um, you know, that's what we have for the documentary base. Uh, but I had to read the sources, you know, against the grain to tell a story about these people who have, in many ways, you know, been silenced. Um, and I think because of this activist impulse of diaspora studies, um, I think because of this activist impulse, diaspora remains um, an effective frame to do contemporary studies uh, of Zainichi, of Chosanjok, of the Koryo Saram which is the name that Koreans in Russia, the former Soviet Union, um, give themselves. Mm, mm. And I, well, I think uh, you see some of the 
same impulses and narratives even up to the present, right? I mean, not only in relation to uh, Koreans per se, but lots of diasporic groups and ideas of model minority status and kind of similarly uh, unfortunate tendencies towards are people good at adjusting to a hegemonic sort of imperial order? Um, it's not. It's not by by any means only an artifact of uh, of this time and place. Um, but I wonder, um, how did you find the archives? You mentioned, uh, you know, plumbing these uh, three different sort of imperial archival resources. Obviously, that would give you some ability, I would guess, to uh, quite literally triangulate, I suppose, and compare uh, and and work sort of in the interstices of these different sources. So um, could you give us a picture of the actual field work or, or uh, sort of archival work that, that that you did and where it was? I, I read actually a really interesting piece you wrote about the practicalities of working in, in the Vladivostok uh, uh, archives, um, which I think will be very helpful for anyone <laughs> looking to, to do that. Um, but uh, could you say a little more about the actual kind of uh, practical exercise of getting some of this information. Uh, if you could just indulge me, I did want to, based on this question, also continue what I was saying about sort of the kind of the meta of the Imperial Archive, um, which is that it was actually because I was looking at various archives of you know, multiple empires that I was able to see the commonality in the language and the perspectives that these states uh, had about the Koreans. Um, And so, you know, a story, the usual story of assimilation that we see in the Russian Empire about the Koreans uh, or, you know, the Japanese, these assimilation debates about, you know, Koreans with the Japanese, within the Japanese Empire. Precisely, I was able to triangulate these uh, and see that these processes were unfolding simultaneously. Uh, and so it became, you know, not just a history of different nations, but sort of a the culmination and the making of kind of an internet, a mini international order and a language uh, within this region. Um, so for the practical side of research, um, I think anyone who's worked in the former Soviet archives know. Uh, knows that, you know, there's a very steep learning curve, (laughs) uh, to say the least. Um, But, you know, once you're in, um, you know, for Russia, you know, knowledge is power. It's very Foucauldian. So the state hoarded all the knowledge. And so once you're actually in the archives, I mean, it's immense. They, They kept everything. And it was very illuminating for me to go for my first time to U.S. archives this summer and the bureaucrats had translated all of these Korean documents, but they had thrown out the original Korean <laughs> post-1945. In Russia, uh, the SARS government saved everything, <laughs> the translations, the copies of the translations, and the original. And so for me, this was, it really was a, a treasure trove of things. Um, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, the original idea was to write a microhistory of the Koreans in Pasyat, which was um, a kind, not exactly, but I mean, it was populated, it was 80%, 80 to 90%, you know, Korean. They had their own kind of bolus government there, a peasant government there. And I had seen traces of the original Korean um, records that they had kept. Um, court records, just meeting minutes, um, but just a few pages just to entice my interest. But unfortunately, um, whether these were destroyed or moved elsewhere, um, I could not find um, that level of document. Um, So, yeah, I mean, most of the uh, book is based on, um, you know, bureaucratic documents, uh, the, the officials, you know, on all three sides were immensely interested um, in the Koreans, but especially uh, the Tsarist government, uh, because unlike the Chinese, the Koreans tended to settle with their families and also stay. Um, and so you have bureaucratic documents, you have a wealth of local uh 
newspapers, which, you know, cannot be found anywhere else in the world, but only in the State Historical Archive um, of the Far East, which is located in the heart of Vladivostok. And I highly recommend everyone to go. And, um, and of course, the Imperial Geographical Society, um, you know, published uh, loads um, on the Koreans, you know, on this region. Um, there are many, you know, we call it Kraividenia, which is, you know, just local history. Um, you know, photos and things are found there. Um, for the uh, Chosan and uh, Qing documents, I mean, uh, those states uh, have published, uh, you know, compilations of um, bureaucratic documents uh, over the years. So in many senses, it was quite accessible um, to kind of get in the head of these officials who were stationed um, uh, on the ground. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, we've already moved a fair way into the concerns of uh, the first part of the book. Um, but I guess just uh, staying on this theme of, of uh, restoring a story about um, about the Koreans and, and their movements, uh, even if you're kind of looking for their accounts in uh, these more official and more uh, kind of yeah, imperially dominated sources. Um, I wonder, uh, uh, could you say something more of the kind of migrant experience um, of these groups of Koreans moving north from the peninsula um, from the mid-19th century and, and really right up until uh, into the first part of the 20th century? Um, what was it that made Koreans decide to move to China rather than Russia, if there were such uh, underlying motivations? Um, And how did they kind of negotiate the differences between uh, the way that these places were governed and the way that their presence there was was managed? Could you kind of say something more about this sort of perspective from from below of this time of great uh, great shift and sovereignty experimentation? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, So why were they moving? so uh, some of it was uh, environmental factors, and I think more you know more scholars need to delve into this. But um, on a broader scale, you know, it didn't matter whether they went to Russia or China; they were simply leaving Hamgyong Province, which is the northernmost province uh, of then Chosen Korea, uh, because of very heavy rainfall in the 19th century. So the 19th century in this region is often known as a very wet century. Uh, So this was very harmful for um, the crops that they were growing in the north, which were primarily dry field crops like barley and millet. Um, In the south, of course, there was also devastating rainfall. Uh, But for Koreans in the south, if they had to move, you know, for another occupation or to find another plot of land, they simply moved to uh, a neighboring province, you know, a neighboring town. For the people who are living in Hamgyong province, you know, moving a little meant you could actually just leave the country because it was so close. And, you know, you've been to the Tumen River, so have I. It's not a very large river. Um, it, it's a very low-lying river. And in fact, uh, the entire valley it's very low lying and that's why it was prone to flooding and, and often in parts it, you know, it freezes over in the winter. Uh, there's this one funny uh, Chosan court document um, that talks about the river and it says that, you know, in the winter um, the river freezes over and not only are people running, but you can actually hear like whispers um, across the river. Um, <clears throat> so, um, other reasons people were going um, to Russia was a seasonal migration. Uh, as I had mentioned, there were these, you know, large-scale projects, construction, um, you know, extraction projects, and so uh, there were tens of thousands of Koreans, and then many more, hundreds of thousands of Chinese who were uh, entering and leaving. Uh, the Russian Far East. So they would enter in the spring and then uh, leave in the fall. 
Um, and many people would actually, you know, build lives around uh, the gold mines um, and build these towns around them and build a life for themselves. And they would have been there for, you know, years on end. Uh, some of them, I found, you know, letters uh, written. They were republished in Korean language newspapers in the Russian Far East. But these, these workers would be writing back to their families um, in Korea. And their families in Korea, you know, the concerned mother, of course, would just worry that her profligate son is, you know, gambling away all of his earnings, <laughs> uh, playing uh, various, you know, games with other Koreans and Chinese in these gambling dens. Um, so on the level of the family, though, I think the reasons for migrating were probably, you know, more complex. Um, and at the level of the family and the individual, you do uh, see people making choices uh, about going to, you know, either country. And um, they were quite strategic um, in their decision making. Um, you know, most of these people are illiterate, so they didn't, there's no, you know, documentary kind of trace that they leave about their lives. And so, again, you have to kind of read against the sources and you can find hints uh, in the official record. Um, you know, there is this rare petition by a Korean farmer who's actually on the, the Qing side. And um, in the 1890s, when many of the Koreans had not naturalized, right, um, the Qing government officials started to force the Koreans, you know, off the land. Um, you know, there was, you know, violence and, and shootings. And you see this Korean farmer, actually, you hear his voice. It's so striking. Um, and his petition is quite long. Um, and he complains to these Qing officials that by their actions, they're actually driving them to go to Russia, which he calls this. Um, barbarian land. Um, you know, at the same time, um, I think early on in the 1860s, when this is when, you know, you have records about these devastating floods in Hamgyong province, uh, I think rumors also spread very quickly against this is a very kind of a tight space of a tripartite border region. And so I think rumors traveled relatively quickly. Um, and so Koreans have heard that the, the Russian government has given land, food, and aid to the earlier waves of migrants. And so, uh, again, we have this rare instance of the voice of a Korean appearing. And so he, he claims that reasoning, right? He cites that reasoning for taking his family um, to Russia. Mm -hmm. I mm. Well, that carries us across into Russia quite well, I think. I mean, uh, if I may just move us on to, to kind of questions about uh, what was going on uh, in Russia at this time. Um, and that, I guess, is the main focus of, of part two of the book. And um, that includes what was going on as Japan was also a, an increasingly uh, kind of v vigorous presence, uh, a domineering presence over the region. Um, so over on the Russian side of the border, which, as I say, is the kind of main focus of uh, of part two. Um, what is the what is kind of you've already discussed a little bit about you know the importance of bringing Russia into this picture uh, of how we look at East Asia and, and sort of history, the geography, and and indeed uh, the anthropology of the region. Um, so, what is it that kind of is particularly revealing, I guess, of Korean sort of experience in in the Russian Far East, and uh, and what was it that kind of convinced you that this was uh, something that you should really focus on for this for this whole second part of the book? Um, well, um, I would actually say that in you know the book started as a dissertation. The dissertation probably uh, started in part two, <laughs> and uh, I started. Again, as I had mentioned, um, I wanted to write a microhistory. And so that was the entry point into this entire project. Um, and so the other, I sort of worked my way from the ground uh, up to the international level. Uh, it was sort of, you know, backwards from the way the book is actually structured. <laughs> and, um, you know, as you know, there are many practical reasons 
for writing what you write about <laughs> in graduate school. And um, the practicality was simply the, the difficulty of, you know, research and, you know, the very scanty existing scholarship. Um, you know, there had been very little written about, you know, the kind of history that I wanted to write about the Koreans in Russia. And the same was actually true for the Koreans in Kondo. So I had to, you know, start with one and then try to add the other, which was the China piece, uh, which was, you know, after, after graduate school. Otherwise, it would have been just uh, too overwhelming. Got it, got it. And so in terms of the Korean presence there, what you did learn about the Korean presence in the far east of Russia, uh, I mean, the, the chapters of part two deal in a really fascinating way with uh, how uh, the kind of mobility of these populations and the evolving sovereignty regime and, and as you say, the kind of effort to make uniform uh, rule over the Russian Empire and then how that transitioned into the Soviet Union um, or equally uh, the kind of connections that existed between Korean settlements and Korean populations, families and, and people doing business and seasonal migrants and so on in the Russian Far East uh, and their kind of uh, compatriots, if you can call it that, uh, back home and so on. Um, but what kind of connections did persist uh, between Koreans in that uh, part of Russia as time went on? I mean, as the Tsarist uh, government exerted a greater level of regularization and control over the area, and then as that transitions to the uh, early Soviet period, um, were, w- would it be the case, to, would it be true to say that these Koreans in this area were becoming more cut off and more isolated from a, uh, the, the peninsula that they had left? Mm. Um, I guess the short answer is, is no. Um, I think that uh, more people actually produced uh, more connections. Um, so the early settlers were kind of re- were running their own villages and districts. And as a result of that, so this is the Russian side, as a result of that, uh, they became a kind of base uh, and a stopping point uh, and a point of, you know, knowledge sharing for other, you know, newly arrived migrants and also, you know, people coming from Hamgyong province, the southern provinces, um, and also Kando. And... Um, uh, these ties are actually, you know, strengthened with time. Um, you have many stories about Koreans who are traveling back and forth, you know, for various reasons. Again, you know, it goes to show, you know, how we imagine this place right now as very separate, North Korea, <laughs> PRC, and Russia. Uh, for many of these Koreans, I don't think they saw much of a difference um, in this very tightly knit tripartite border area. Of course, they made decisions about, you know, where to go based on practicalities of life. Uh, And they knew the ins and outs of the laws and, you know, how to get around. Uh, But, you know, they were tending to the graves of their ancestors in Korea. This was a Confucian rite that they took very seriously. Some of them were actually unearthing the graves of their ancestors in Korea moving them to Russia or China. This was not an uncommon practice, even within the Korean Peninsula. Um, They're tending to business, you know, in Korea, Kando, and Russia. And what was striking to me, which um, became, you know, an inspiration, again, as I, you know, was writing the book, which was that I had met Koreans who, uh, you know, had moved, who were from Central Asia, and they moved back to the Russian Far East, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, I would ask them about their great-grandparents and how they came to Russia. And and they said they just told stories of these peripatetic lives. I was born in Hamgyong. We moved, you know, my great-grandparents were born in Hamgyong. They moved to Kando. Uh, Then we moved to Russia because there was no border then. So I was constantly, you know, kind of coming up against this idea that there were borders imposed, and yet some of these people are insisting um, that there were uh, no borders. Um, but anyway, that just gives you a sense of the this the fluidity 
uh, of this place. Right. There's a, there's a moment in uh, actually in Kim Il Sung's um, Segi Watabara the, with the century where he says, I mean, it's obviously a question about questionable how much of that at all is to be believed. But there is a point where he crosses into the Russian Far East from northeastern China or from Manchuria um, in 1940. Um, so actually a great deal later in many cases than this sort of late 19th century period. Um, and uh, he uh, says himself, you know, he couldn't tell where that one territory ended and the next uh, began. Um, and as I say, I mean, whether you believe anything Kim Il-sung uh, wrote down or the people who wrote it for him wrote down is obviously up to you. But <laughs> it's a, a point that is made even well into the 20th century that this was in many ways a quite borderless area in many, many places. And actually, um, I'm actually thinking it is because of the imposition of a strict border regime in the actual tripartite area, the very place where the three countries meet. Because of the imposition of that, and more officials stationed there, Koreans actually took learned to take more circuitous routes farther north um, in the maritime province, perhaps even going as far north um, as Habarovsk, uh, with the Heilongjiang Habarovsk um, border. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess that, that mobility did extend all the way uh, across an even more wide region than just this this exact uh, nexus of the three places. Um, but I guess, I mean, as we kind of draw towards uh, the close, and I guess some of the longer term ramifications of um, this kind of cross border, or maybe cross border doesn't even make sense if the borders themselves are uh, quite hazy, uh, but this presence of Koreans in multiple spaces. Um, I wonder uh, how and what were these groups seen as uh, somehow threatening to the various sovereignty claims that were being exercised from uh, Japan and from uh, the kind of European parts of Russia or the Soviet Union? Um, and how did those sort of interact with uh, the projects that these places had to civilize and uh, kind of conquer and incorporate this frontier area into their own politics. The Koreans. Yeah. yeah how would that, how is their presence seen as being a potential threat yes. to that? Um, I mean, it, it, it's sort of ironic to think, you know, Koreans are from a relatively weak state and yet we see this persistent language in the sources about how they were a problem. Uh, and at, at many times, you know, at least in the Russian case, um, that they were danger. On the Chinese side, right, after the colonization of Japan, uh, Japan's colonization of Korea in 1910, the Koreans also become this kind of danger. And the Japanese refer to Koreans abroad as a danger. So, so why is this if Korea itself is seen as a comparatively weak state? Uh, it's actually precisely because of all of these you know, imperial machinations <laughs> upon Korea that are projected onto Korea, I think, that Korean migrants come to be seen as this problem uh, and in many times a threat because they could embody the power uh, of these various empires. Uh, these empires were imagined to be using the migrants who were malleable, right, and weak themselves to... Um, spread their influence across borders. So we see the Tsarist officials are worried about the Qing doing that, migrants in Russia, Korean migrants in Russia. After 1910, Russians believe that Japanese are using the migrants to spread their influence, right, um, in Russia and also Kando. And then, you know, the Japanese themselves, they're worried about the subversive activities of these Korean migrants, um, seeping back into Korea, right? Their actual colony. Um, so Koreans as weak and malleable and, you know, embodying the threat of imperial powers. So this all, they kind of become a proxy for the intense geopolitical anxieties that are emerging at the turn of the 20th century. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's really, yeah, fascinating kind of way of, understanding that in a very compelling one where you're looking at um, states that are becoming perhaps uh, increasingly uh, intolerant of uh, any sense of overlap or blurring in terms of the areas they consider themselves to control and their proximity to rivals and their anxieties are then sort of mapped on to uh, 
a mobile population who you know then seem to sort of embody um the the yeah the the kind of insecurity i guess that as you say is comes from into imperial competition and so on um and so then uh, in this sort of epilogue of the book um you touch on i guess what might be seen as a sort of final you know or at least in the period you're concerned uh, you're concerned with here a final violence outgrowth of what we've been talking about so far and that is the yeah, the 1937 deportation which you uh, mentioned all the way actually at the beginning of this conversation um so how early in your view were the seeds of this sown? I mean, do you think we can understand the 1937 deportation of Koreans from the Russian Far East to Central Asia? In uh, for, is it is it helpful to see it uh, in the context of what was going on, say, late in the 19th century? Um, if we just remove the word deportation and rename it, you know, forced uh, resettlement. Um, I think we can actually see um, the 1937 tragedy or incident uh, as um, really consistent with SARS government policy from the very moment that Koreans began to migrate to the Russian Far East. Um, The SARS government consistently spoke of trying to move the Koreans away from the border region and to move them farther north, where they would be able to mix with other Slav settlers uh, and thereby lose their native uh, backward ways. Uh, So in that sense, it's it's sort of a continuous policy. And uh, this uh, resettlement programs are not unusual for large empires. Um, you know, the Qing does this uh, in Manchuria. It's moving, you know, these bannermen from Beijing to various areas in Manchuria because of the lack of people. And certainly the SARS government did this throughout its history. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of course, we cannot forget the, um, the heightened, you know, geopolitical tensions uh, and, of course, domestic tensions uh, ideological tensions uh, within the Soviet Union um, in the 1930s. And so this is what causes the frenzy, you know, around the Koreans in the Russian Far East. Um, you know, Japan has declared the Soviet Union, you know, its enemy in the 1930s. Um, you have, um, you know, after collectivization, you know, the population is devastated. People are still reeling from that. Um, you know, tensions on the Western Front. And of course, these are again sort of imposed, imputed, these anxieties are imputed on uh, the Korean people in the Russian Far East. So they're named ideological enemies um, and also kind of international enemies, um, labeled Japanese spies. Um, And of course, they become the first ethnic uh, forced deportation um, during the Great Terror. Right, which then, I guess, also comes to include various other ethnic groups and people spanning the entire uh, space of the massive Soviet uh, empire. So in a sense, I guess, at this very granular, nuanced case gives us a great um, sort of volume of insight into much broader processes occurring right across the Soviet Union and indeed, I think, uh, across time in different places today. I mean, um, you've mentioned North Korea a couple of times and the kind of anxieties and the kind of problematization of uh, inhabitants of that country moving around uh, persists right up until the present. So it's hardly uh, a, a thing that we can banish to um, the, the history books or, or to the you know obscure archives in Vladivostok or, or anywhere else. So, um, Alisa, uh, that's been brilliant. Thank you so much for um, uh, talking to us today about all of this. Um, I mean, there's a whole lot we didn't get to, and uh, I would vigorously encourage listeners to uh, pick up a copy of the book and really delve into some of the other great trove of information and rich uh, stories and, and, and uh, kind of uh, really revealing um, analysis, I would also say, of what's going on in the interstate relationships too that is all in the book. Um, but uh, before we let you go, finally, perhaps I'll ask you uh, what you're up to now. You've mentioned that you're moving into uh, some US archives. Uh, is that 
uh, in relation to current projects you have on the go or what's what's come since the book? Uh, yes. Uh, first, a very good break for myself. <laughs> and um, I guess, well, my first book was about people who left Korea. And so my second project will be about people who returned to Korea. <laughs> Uh, so this is people who repatriated uh, after 1945, uh, the collapse of the Japanese Empire, and then you know the birth of a arguably a new empire on the uh, Korean Peninsula, which was uh, the U.S. Um, so this story of repatriation, um, I guess, is sort of an exploration into the fact that Korea never had a, a post-war period, a post-colonial period. Uh, in fact, we never hear the word decolonization uh, in regard to Korea. Certainly, we hear that for the Japanese empire, right? It was de-imperialized, demembered uh, as an empire. But why? When Korea was a colony, of course, um, did it not have this process? And of course, it's because of division, reoccupation by the Soviet Union and the US, you know, extreme violence, and then you have another war. And so I'm looking at this tra- these traumatic events uh, post-1945, again, through the lens of mobility, the Koreans were trying to make their way back to their homeland. So we will see how that progresses. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh, if it's anything like this project, I'm sure it will be absolutely uh, fantastic, and yeah, greatly look forward to reading uh, what comes out of that uh, analysis of, as you say, people moving in the other direction. Um, but in the meantime, Elisa, uh, thank you so much for appearing again. It was uh, wonderful talking to you. Thank you. Um, and listeners, thank you too for listening, as ever, to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and we will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye. Mm-hmm.